0: Presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Arizona's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright.
1: Welcome to Common Sense Institute podcast. I'm your host, Earl Wright, Chairman of CSI Board of Directors. On today's episode, we'll be talking all about K 12 education. For decades, the number one policy issue that's been top of mind for most Americans is education, it's the future of our country. This comes as no surprise as our nation's North Star for leadership is sustainability, mentoring, and empowering the next generation of leaders. And lately, the Common Sense Institute of Arizona has been delving into crucial issues revolving around education policy in the 2020 decade, especially after ripple effects of the global pandemic and subsequent political shifts in state legislatures across the nation. Joining me today to discuss whether our Southwest states, particularly Arizona may be moving backwards as it relates to education excellence, is Lisa Graham Keegan, Vice Chair of the Board of Directors at Common Sense Institute, Arizona. Lisa is unmatched as an expert in K through 12 education policy and dedicated public servant. For over 17 years, she has been principal partner of Keegan & Company where she leads the numerous projects on emerging innovations in American education, has developed a national reputation as a strong advocate for student-based education policies. Her aptitude for education policy and education reform, along with her overall professionalism, is highly sought by national education leaders, media personnel, policy organizations, business groups, community groups, and numerous U.S. public officials, including congressmen. Previously, in 2000 to 2008, she was educational advisor to John McCain Campaigns for President and was interviewed in 2000 by President-elect Bush for the job as U.S. Secretary of Education. And Lisa spent a decade from 1991 to 2001 serving Arizona communities as an elected official, first in the Arizona House of Representatives, and then as a state school superintendent. During her tenure, she championed clear and challenging academic standards and publicly transparent assessments and fought successfully for the implementation of school choice, including Arizona's landmark free open enrollment, charter school and tuition tax credit laws. She also led efforts to revise the state's school finance formulas to reflect a commitment to equal access and choice of excellent schools. Her work has repeatedly been cited by many national publications, including the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, NPR, and Education Week. Lisa, I'm exhausted from reading this, and sharing this with everybody. We, we could recite autobiography on all your achievements and go on more for this podcast, but you know, let's get started. Thank you for joining us today in today's show. So happy to be here. Thank you, Earl. Lisa, Governor Hobbs really prioritized public education in her state of the state address. Can you provide us a bit of background on where Arizona education currently stands? I'd love to, Earl. So Arizona, as you alluded to,
2: has been a real standard bearer for educational choice for the last two decades at least, and. In the last decade, Arizona is one of the fastest growing uh, achievement states in the country as gauged by national assessments. So we really have been doing a great job of improving and we needed to (laughs) for sure. The pandemic slowed that for us as it did for everybody. But that's really the, the state of play in Arizona is that we have a great mix of choice. So we have public district schools, public charter schools. We have tuition tax credits into private schools providing access and we have empowerment uh, accounts which are like in ESA anywhere else where families can take the money but otherwise used to educate them in public schools and they can use that for private education so it is a wide selection in Arizona to the point Earl where less than 50% of families in Maricopa County which is the Phoenix area less than 50% attend their assigned school this is a really positive disruption in Arizona uh, because the choice has been, and we document this, families are choosing from a lower quality for their student to a higher quality for their student. Most of that has to do with good fit, Earl. As you know, you know, one school could be great for one child and not for another. I mean, schools do specialize in maybe the arts or STEM or, you know, some of them are, especially in the charter sector, very specialized on science and mathematics. A lot of kids really need that. A lot of the charter schools, arts schools, um, a lot of the district schools have responded by setting up their own specialty schools. So Arizona responds to what parents tell them over time they want. We are genuinely... A marketplace or have been. And right now, after the pandemic, when we, you know, we, our students took such a hit. uh, You cannot take kids out of school for this long and expect not to have a massive problem. My biggest concern is that we forget that what brought us here was really focusing on funding the student and letting parents choose a school site. That brings you innovation. If you let that market work, parents will choose into better and better schools and educators will keep creating better and better schools. That's, that's where they come from is great teachers and great school leaders who create these schools. My biggest fear right now is that after times of, you know, difficulty, as we had in the pandemic, there's always a lot of people who'd like a centralized, one-size-fits-all solution. And I'm afraid they're going to try to impose that on Arizona's system. And that would be tragic. Uh, you've got well, before, to
1: Before we get into that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to go back to the beginning for a second. You know, I'm big on, and all of us and all of our listeners are big on having our students having a higher graduation rate Then maybe when all these changes came in and having a a higher achievement ability with regards to math, uh, science and reading. uh, Have you any sense of uh, have the Arizona uh, students K through 12 achieved a higher level of uh, knowledge retention and education with all these choices you are giving, uh, giving them? Without a doubt, Earl. And we
2: use the national assessments, the NAEP. Um, to look at Arizona over time. So without question, we've had those improvements and we see it in our state testing as well. Especially, I have to say, the charter system as a whole outpaces the district system. Now, I don't think that's a great way to gauge individual schools. Uh, and it makes me uncomfortable to use this statistic, but it's also true. And in CSI, we tell the truth. So here's the truth. Every grade, every subject, every year, charter schools were outpacing the traditional district schools. I've, I am not ready to use any post-pandemic data yet. I think we need it for three years before we know anything. So we're really in a data hole here. But that's what was going on, Earl. You've got to credit um, these great schools that that teachers are running and the pressure that comes from a competitive marketplace in schooling. Both of those things
1: happen. There, there tends to be a deficit uh, in um uh educational opportunities with regards to minorities. Yes. Um, How is the school choice uh, working uh, with a better opportunity for minorities or even the bottom two quintiles of the economic environment in uh, Arizona?
2: That's who you have to pay attention to, Earl. And that's who who we work with almost exclusively, the Keegan Company, and they have benefited almost more uh, than any other kids from a choice environment, kids from lower income families. Um, And what you see now, what's really interesting to me right now, and we can talk about this later, but is how many community members and lower income communities are fired up about the opportunity to start schools under the really universal ESA in Arizona, and the ability to start a micro school, a smaller school, a community school, I think the pandemic drove families away from schools that weren't serving them particularly in lower income communities and we saw the rise of um, at that time charter schools uh, that were sort of these pod schools we hear about but arizona is a very uh, relatively i would say easier place to innovate and create new schools and when parents were unhappy during the pandemic particularly in lower income areas these things sprung up and they continued to grow
1: Maybe you can build on that and tell us how the Arizona students and schools are adopting to learning in this post-pandemic world.
2: Uh, differentially, Earl <laughs> put it nicely. I am blown away by we had schools who did not lose achievement level; they continued to gain during the pandemic. Unbelievable! That's,
1: that's nationally that just wasn't occurring nationally. How in the world no. did you do it?
2: Well, the state didn't do it as a whole, Earl. I mean, we in make up those a schools.
1: Business- how they do it?
2: Well, they, they stuck with it, or they They were in school for as long as they could be. And if they were online, they kept a schedule. And I know that sounds ridiculously simple. They were also great schools to begin with. So their instruction was fabulous. They had the grace of great teachers. So these are great schools are great cultural communities, right? They were believers in Kids Can from the get-go. And this new environment didn't change that for them. They just adapted. You know, they would get their kids on camera together the way we are right now at 830 in the morning. And they were checking in with them live continuously throughout the day. And that was highly unusual. It was very hard to do. I am so grateful to them. But that's what they did. You, They just didn't lose the time. And time on task is... You know, you can't
1: replace it. Let's talk about the kids that uh, didn't have the experience that you're talking about. The learning loss, you know, has been enormous throughout yeah. the country. And apparently you had it in Arizona. For sure. So what's being considered moving forward to tackle the issue?
2: Well, the only way to replace time is, is to add it, Earl. <laughs> so... Last year, Governor Ducey allocated about $100 million for free summer school, and we targeted low-income communities. So we marketed heavily into low-income areas for school operators or camp operators to come forward. It was highly successful, and almost two, well, two-thirds, over two-thirds of the kids that we served were from low-income areas. You know, a lot of a lot of people said when Governor Ducey offered this to all students that, you know, rich families would just, of course, they'd be the ones to opt in and they'd get their camp for free. That's not what happened. And we saw community members like the YMCA, the Boys and Girls Club, small local community uh, um, centers operate summer camp with academics. They created some academic partnerships And we had great academic gain, I think it was 86% of the the sites reported good progress. Now you're in school for two to eight weeks, so you're not going to see a year's worth of gain, but they gained back, Earl, and that's what was so important. Plus, we provided a report card to the school then that they went to in the fall to give that teacher some information about where that child was, what their summer school teacher thought they needed, or, you know, a lot of this is social. Kids forgot how to interact with each other and you can't learn well if you're, if you're uncomfortable personally. So <clears throat> there's nothing that's gonna replace that time together, Earl. And, and uh, there was a lot of money that came from the feds that's still out there in, in public schools and that needs to be applied to additional time.
1: You know, I, I, I hear this, but I, I must admit, uh, Lisa, I'm, I'm confused. Your current governor, as mentioned, she wanted to essentially discontinue the results-based funding and start to dabble in what it is that you, you've created. It seems like it's not only unique, but it's also been immensely successful. What about this results-based funding, and what is she up to? What, you know, what, would, happen, what would happen if the, the state stopped the program? I, I just don't understand what's going on. Yeah, two major programs, Earl, that she's not happy
2: with and has said she'd like to dismantle. One is results-based funding, and the other is the empowerment accounts that allow parents to choose into private education. She'd like to dismantle both. She probably won't. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of members of the public that uh, are accessing those things. And results-based funding is something that we felt very strongly about because our funding formula is a per pupil formula and the money does travel with kids for the most part. It's not very transparent yet, although the Transparency portals up as of yesterday, so we now know what's being spent at the school level, but that's how you create the opportunity is have money following kids. The problem was uh, that we weren't providing any incentive for achievement. As you pointed out earlier, Earl, there's some basic things that kids have a right to know, how to read, how to do basic math, what's the history of this country and their role in it, uh, science, basic science. So... We assess those things, and then we can report out on who gets that done and who doesn't. Results-based funding is not just about rewarding the schools at the top of the heap who probably come from wealthy areas. We double fund the students in lower-income areas that get to this achievement level, Um, and it's just a per-pupil bonus, Earl. And the reason that we did it is because we talked to the leaders of our best schools and the superintendents or the system leaders will tell us, we need a way to focus our staff on, on these key issues because so, there's so many things you can focus on. Uh, they really want them focused on the academic goals and it's a very simple formula. Um, it changes every now and then, but it really is simply a way to say, you get the fullest formula if you perform for kids if you fail to perform for kids and they're not reading or they're not doing math, we're not going to pay you the full amount. So you can either think of it about a bonus for schools who make it or some sort of, um, uh, lesser amount for schools that don't.
1: What what do the schools do if they achieve that bonus? So they've got 20% more than they originally thought they might have. So what do they do with 20% more, 10 or 5% more? What do they do with that money? Well, our intention is that
2: they're able to grow, Earl, but it's easier for them to grow. Uh, And the teachers
1: get paid more for achievement.
2: They're supposed to. uh, And and hopefully they do. That should be the first the first issue. In order to grow a school, to get bigger, you have to you have to retain your staff. That's the number one issue, as you know, Earl. The thing that got you there is the staff. So you got to pay your staff more. Hopefully that's that's the point to sustain that high level of performance. And then as you get bigger, it's harder, obviously you got to add new staff and probably capital, et cetera. So it has been helpful, Um, the schools that are still highly performing and that are growing are telling us they use these uh, results-based funds to do
1: that. Interesting. Well, uh, we saw the governor of your fine state on TV last weekend and she was quizzed with regards to her efforts to cut back the program. Do you have any uh, comments you would like to make with regards to her, her comments? And uh, you know what uh, factors loss makers should be taking into account that maybe she's missing so that this program can continue other, other than maybe regressing? Earl, I, I do have something to say about
2: that. Everybody's entitled to their policy opinion. Uh, but at Common Sense Institute, we had put out at, uh, a great report, and Glenn has done such a great job for us, and we also have other people around the country who help us, but a great re- report where we pointed out, look, the decline in enrollment that came not just with the pandemic but before has created a lot of available resources, over $500 million that we had otherwise it planned to spend on District and charter, when and although the charter schools are growing, the district school is a little bit in decline. So that money is available, and even if this program grows to the point where everybody currently, you know, in a private school is being uh, as and it is growing fast, parents are liking it, is being supported by the state. It won't take up as much money as we have available and had planned to use for kids in in public schooling. Now wait
1: so, wait 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 a minute. Yeah, it's hard for me to see. That if i have a student that goes to a charter school the overall cost to the system is less to have that student supplemented by it through this program uh, than to have them go to the public school there's there's a net savings it's a net savings if you go to a private school so yes.
2: Charter, yes yeah if to a private school charters are public so but if you choose to go to a private school you take, I think, is it 90% of what you would otherwise have is just the basic formula in Arizona. So it's a the, the state is saving money, if you will, on these students every time somebody selects into a private school. So the governor's claim last week that this system would bankrupt the state is just, that's ridiculous. If you don't like the program, say you don't like the program and tell us why, but don't do bad math on national television. It's embarrassing. Right, we have standards in Arizona. That's just not a good idea. So that's. what well, I think she was happen. kind
1: of. Wasn't she kind of embarrassed, Lisa, by your study being pulled up on national TV and showing that what she was saying was was incorrect? Or did I or did I miss something? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how
2: she felt, but I like I like I said, or I don't like bad math coming from It's on national television. Don't do bad math. Just say you don't like
1: it. <laughs> well, the, the, now joining us today, uh, since you've mentioned him and the work that he had done, Lisa, yeah. uh, is the former Arizona chief economist and current Common Sense Institute uh, Arizona director of policy and research, Glenn Farley. Recently, Glenn has authored and published two in-depth comprehensive reports on Arizona's complex K-12 through budgetary funding formula and the accumulation a school facility space across the valley. Glenn, I was blown away by the the excess, I guess, land available, the facilities, the vacancies that are there, and the economic value that is being hidden away from the state. That Those are my words, not yours. Um, by the, I guess, the inventory of this land at the school district level. What in the world's going on?
0: Well, thanks, Norrell. It's always a pleasure to be back with you. And thanks, Lisa, for your, your help and kind words about the the studies and reports we put out. And you're absolutely right. Arizona has a history. It accelerated here and nationally in 2020 with the COVID pandemic. But the history of overestimating the growth in our district public schools goes back as far as our uh, funding formulas, our per-pupil funding formulas and our school capital funding formulas that were all created roughly in the late 90s, early 21st century. At the time, we were able to produce these reports, we were able to dig up some old forecasts that were produced by what we call our school facilities board and our auditor general from around the early 2000s, the turn of the 21st century. And they were projecting that by this time, 2022, there'd be about 1.4 million students enrolled in Arizona's district public schools. For context, the actual number is about 850,000. And guess how many kids were enrolled in district public schools in 2000 when they were doing these estimates and creating these funding formulas? The answer is about 850,000. So not only did we not get the rapid growth that has been anticipated basically annually by the state's forecasters in the district schools, we actually have no growth. The system is effectively flat. There was tepid growth in the period about 2000 to 2020, Then the pandemic happened and and Lisa already talked about this, but strikingly during the pandemic in the state of Arizona, 30,000 kids roughly exited the district public school system and never returned. Those kids are either in charter schools, they're being homeschooled or their private school, but we know they're not in district public schools. So the net effect of that is Our our funding formulas and our capital finance system is pumping money into a system that parents and students are no longer choosing, and that's the traditional district school system.
1: You go on in your report to point out some other things, and Lisa alluded to changes in aroma trends throughout the valley. But in your reports, it seems as though school funding methods have not adopted to such trends. And uh, elaborate. Uh, What are the facts and data they're telling us about public education funding? throughout Arizona um, and, and kind of what is the result of that funding I if I read your report correctly my gosh you've got uh, you know cash stowed away in various places or various pockets that uh, I think any corporate uh, CEO would be saying wait a minute what are you doing with all that because we have uses for that in other parts por- or places within the state uh, so what's happening how is this how is this occurring?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Lisa alluded to this, but, but, but it bears reiterating in theory, the system in Arizona is intended to, to follow the student. There are exceptions and, and such, but in theory, in principle, funding follows the student in practice. The formulas tend to, to lag or have weights or exceptions built in that prevent that from occurring smoothly. So when there's rapid changes in enrollment, the system just Can't quickly adapt, especially when those changes are outside either the district or the charter system. So what we saw in 2020 is very rapid disenrollment, but the system, you know, policymakers, the formulas, they continued to just drop money into the Department of Education on the assumption that those enrollment trends would return. And what that meant is we were reverting, which is just a technical term, hundreds of millions of dollars annually, Um, as recently as the last budget that the legislature enacted a little less than 12 months ago, the legislature anticipated $250 million in savings. That's money that they were spending to educate kids in a system that they were no longer enrolled in, if that makes sense. Partly in response to that, policymakers enacted what Lisa called the Universal Empowerment Scholarship Accounts. All that was was effectively an acknowledgement that we've spent this hundreds of millions of dollars already to educate K-12 students. Those students aren't in the district schools. We need to reallocate those resources to where they are. And frankly, we don't know entirely where they are. That's the other shocking thing about this. We know they're not in district schools. Some of them are in charter schools. The charters have grown, but nowhere near enough to absorb all these kids. The, the speculation at this point is they're in the combination of private schooling and homeschooling. But, but because of data lags, again, exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, we don't really have confirmation even today, two plus years later
1: help me out if i'm if i'm a legislator uh, what does this mean to the state budget going forward how do i how do i handle this uncertainty how do you take this to uh, avoiding unintended consequences uh, on the enrollment shift going forward uh, explain it to our uh, our listeners
0: it's a it's a great question and and the answer is nobody knows for sure but what we do know for certainty is the state plans to spend significantly more monies on K-12 education than it has been spending in recent years.
1: And so what's that money going to go for? Teacher salaries? I know the previous administration uh, increased teacher salaries rather significantly as a part of some things going on, but how about going forward? What's that money going for?
0: Well, that, that is then the policy question. So what's happened for the past couple of years is that money has quote, unquote, reverted. It just, lapses back to the state general fund. And so if if you look or, or you have heard, Arizona and probably Colorado and many other states has billions of dollars in surplus cash in the state general fund. Part of the reason for that is these planned expenditures on public education just don't occur. And so at the end of the fiscal year, the budget authority expires and the money reverts. So policymakers now have a decision to make of what to do with those, those hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars in planned but not happening expenditures. Governor Ducey at the time and the Republican legislature last year made the deliberate policy choice that that money should continue to be used for K-12 educational purposes, just where the kids are today, not where we thought they'd be three years ago. I think Governor Hobbs has laid out a different argument that money should be continued to be used on the K-12 district system, regardless of whether or not the, the students are continuing to enroll there the way we thought they would a couple of years ago. And that's the policy disagreement that you're seeing play out. So the money's there, to, to Lisa's point, to go down either path. It's not a question of bankrupting or not bankrupting. It's just a policy disagreement over how that money should be spent. Let's,
1: let's pursue that for a second, because we're all interested in strengthening air, in education. And I know you all, and that's what this conversation is about, at Arizona education. Lisa, is there anything the state can do going forward? Okay. current administration going forward, current legislation to ensure that the state provides students with the best possible education and at the same time, you know, keep the fiscal responsibility in place that has been there for some time. Absolutely, Earl. And it's to be urgent
2: right now. And you get that money to the kids so that parents can put them in the school they want to go to, as Glenn points out, no matter where that is or where we thought they would be. It's so urgent right now, Earl, that parents check are their kids learning? Is there a plan for reengaging, for gaining back? If your school doesn't have that, go look for another one. It is no joke. This is the time not to wait. And Arizona has made that possible by saying look, here's the, the full range of choices. You've got public schools, private schools, homeschooling that you can get supported. Do what matters for your child, do it now, and the state will support you. And hopefully, we don't have people getting in the way of that ability of families to act urgently now, so that their kids don't lose even more. What we know, Earl, is that when parents choose the school they think is right for their child, that is generally resulting in a better education for that child. So, Lisa,
1: Lisa, no offense to you and I being educated a, a few decades ago, (laughs) <laughs> I'm not trying to tell people what your age is, but uh, why, when when you and I were engaged, uh, our parents got involved with in the PTA and they went down and they got, uh, they would talk about the education. They would talk to the teachers. They talked to the principals from the schools and they had a, I guess, maybe a little bit of a hands-on, I guess, impact at the school. Th- what I hear you is different. The parents today have to get engaged in deciding what's best for their children, and really assess their kids, how well they're doing. They have to, it just can't be, I'm turning my children over to the public school system and I know they'll just do a good job for me. It's now, hey, my child has unique needs and there are schools that can meet those needs and I wanna make certain that they have a chance. And in Arizona, you're allowing that now more engaged parent to have more say about the child's education direction than maybe what you and I experienced when we were going to public schools. Am I, or am I missing something?
2: No, I don't think you are, Earl, but we have, we also have a lot more data now about who actually is benefiting from schooling and who isn't from public schooling. So particularly in low-income areas, the activation of families in low-income areas is quite high, always actually has been. Nobody moves their kids around more in search of a good school than lower-income families in wealthier communities we've had the benefit of activism and parents had the time to be going to schools and the money unfortunately these systems have been unequal and there were where was more money available years and years ago before we equalized in these wealthier areas but that accumulates over time so What's happening now, Earl, is that the way parents need to be engaged is, number one, respectfully. I'm really tired of hearing about people yelling at each other at school board meetings. I'm real done with it. Be respectful. If school doesn't work for you, get out. Don't go try to change the whole curriculum just for your child or something you don't like. Go find a school that's teaching the way you want them to. And in Arizona, you can do that. I'm not saying don't don't be involved and don't comment on curriculum. Of course, do it. But do it respectfully. But the fact of the matter is, it takes a long time, that kind of activism, to adopt a new curriculum. You've got a seven-year-old. She needs you right now to find a school that will work for her, especially after this pandemic, girls. So the pressures on families are quite high right now for parents. And I sympathize, you know, with our kids and um, on the trying to take care of their kids. Our grandchildren right now are having to make these same choices. This is just the way that it is. Unfortunately, Arizona, we're allowing those choices, but you've got to activate yourself and and be respectful. And go go do your do your homework and find out what's best for your child.
1: Okay, hey Glenn, uh, you've run the numbers. You're really on top of the economics. Uh, what do you think the fiscally responsible thing is going forward? If you'd like to to kind of give us some of your insights, I'd appreciate it.
0: Well, that is uh, uh, a tough question to answer because Arizona is in a point of transition and change to its system that probably hasn't occurred in, in decades, frankly. But historically, the state has been able to count on... The costs of K-12 education coming in lower than we budgeted, particularly since 2020. I think policymakers have gotten used to that. Uh, since the, the expansion of the empowerment scholarship accounts, that curve is probably going to bend. The kids that you thought you were going to be educating, you're going to be educating just not in the way you thought you were a few years ago. So, so from that perspective, I think policymakers need to, to prepare themselves to adapt and adjust to a new reality where, where you know, K-12 costs are going to be growing more consistent with the way they did, you know, in the 2000 to 2010 period, not the 2020 to 23 period. And uh, and that's going to require them to kind of readjust uh, their thinking a little bit because you've been able to count on, you know, two, $250, $300 million a year uh, reverting back, like I said, to the general fund in unspent K-12 appropriations.
1: So you're saying you're going to spend more money?
0: Well, Arizona is on track to spend uh, more money on K-12 education today than than it was on track to spend uh, last year or two years ago under the old formulas.
1: Well, most state budgets are expanding, Glenn, because of the growth in the economy. So are we saying you're going to, as a proportion of the general fund, whatever you call that in Arizona, is it going to be more or is it just going to be a larger dollar amount, but the same proportion that it has been in the past? What are we talking about?
0: Yeah, you know, we've talked about that on, on your program as well, but the Arizona general fund since the pandemic has grown without precedent. I mean, we're talking 10 to 20% annual growth rates in revenues. Uh, I don't think those trends are sustainable in perpetuity. Obviously at some point that's going to slow down, but, but again, it's, it bears repeating given that recent rapid growth and given the enrollment loss in the district system, is there a chance of this bankrupting the state? No. Does it require, you know, uh, resources are still scarce, even in that kind of growth environment. So it it is a question of priorities, not a question of bankruptcy. It means that you'll have less money, for example, to spend on the district system, more money, for example, to spend on the the charter and choice systems.
1: Okay, but CSI has uh, conducted a study. We're talking about dollars that might be available. You know, you found that the public school districts to be the fifth largest landowner in the state. I was blown away by that. I, I, just, I didn't expect that. The value of all XX space, you estimated to be $3.3 billion. Uh, that's a significant part of any state's budget. Uh, can you elaborate more on these findings and uh, what in the world does it mean, Glenn?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So so one qualifier I'll add on that, it's fifth largest private landowner. So to, to get there, we do have to exclude the state of Arizona and the federal government, which are both very, very large landowners by themselves, dwarfing all the private owners. But it still is striking that school districts uh, really were designed and intended to educate children not to be real estate developers or real estate investors. But in practice, over the decades, they've acted more like the latter than the former. And, and what's driving that, again, to reiterate is we've built a system that plans for growth. It funds growth. So SFB, the state school facilities board, the state, her people funding formulas all contemplate funding growth and allocate monies accordingly. There's not really a good system in place to for what to do when districts shrink or stop growing. And in fact, it's sort of an annual fight at the legislature. The districts don't like the aspects of the funding formula that claw back funding when they lose students, and so the legislature will often compromise. They'll they'll go to lagged per pupil funding rather than current year per pupil funding. Uh, the school facilities board is back to to funding school growth based on two year forward projections. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was not using those forward projections. So there's these constant fights, but the system as a whole is really geared towards funding growth. And as a consequence, what we've done over time is. We've done a very good job of funding that growth and a very poor job of managing the districts and parts of the state that aren't growing or that are stagnating. And so you add space, you add capacity, you add funding, but you don't really manage the existing resources very well. And so you end up with this massive overaccumulation and the fact that now our schools are in possession of far more land, buildings, and space than they need for their current enrollment numbers.
1: I want to ask both of you, you mentioned the legislature and just, you know, the difficulty of them coming to a solution. What about the communities? Uh, They're right there. The school districts are right there. Uh, What could they do uh, on their own with this space that would uh, maybe help uh, provide further funding or maybe uh, do more to help uh, the the education of our children? I'm not real certain what your ideas might be. Lisa? Well, I'll, I'll go ahead. Glenn points out in his report
2: uh, brilliantly that look, there's a lot of asset there. You could sell it and, and use that for your schools, uh, for your school kids.
1: Three point three billion is a lot of money, even today's market. Is a lot
2: of money it still is. You know, Earl, what I would like to see is that the available school space we have that could be sold to schools that are growing, where parents want to be, that that is a possibility. It's obviously an anti-competitive move that's going on here. If you're a district and your district has been drained because there's a public charter school or a better performing district school next to you where parents are choosing, Um, And we have this on both instances in Arizona where a charter school will try to go in and buy an empty district school or also a district that is high quality needs another school. They try to go into the district next door, which is legal in Arizona. It's unusual, but we made it legal because of this great disruption we have. The boards don't want to sell to a higher performing competitor. Now, we need to just get our heads together here. We're all in the business of the best possible education for kids and if schools are performing extremely well and they are growing because families want to be in them and they need a new school, we ought to be able to obtain that school for school use, right? That, that's the most urgent thing. So I think policymakers need to look hard at this. Some of these buildings over the past 20 years have been paid for by the state. As Glenn points out, we do have a school facilities board. The entire state bought those schools, but by You know, law right now, it belongs to the district, even though the district taxpayers did not fund that school. So we have a lot of policy work we need to really remember uh, where these things came from, get honest about it, find a way to make sure that the taxpayers who paid for a building aren't on the hook for something that they can't still own or that they can't settle the debt on. Um, But I really think we need to be much more fluid, Earl, and start making schools and school facilities available to the highest performing schools we have where we do have wait lists.
1: Lynn, uh, she sounds pretty specific in her ideas. You want to contribute? Any thoughts you might have?
0: No, I I think uh, Lisa's for sure, the policy expert here. I'm just an economist and, but I agree. I think given what I have found looking at the numbers and the data, it appears that the, the problems in Arizona are driven by a system that again contemplates growth at the district schools and doesn't contemplate kind of uh, declining enrollment or management of, of lack of growth. And so I agree with Lisa, you know, reallocate existing resources to where they're needed, where they're in demand rather than just focus on on adding more resources as the demand comes up is, is, I think, the long-term policy solution here.
1: Who's taking the lead on this in Arizona? Uh, is anybody stepping forward, recognizing what you all are recognizing with regards to these excess facilities and, and the incredible financial resource they are and saying, hey, let's get together statewide or district-wise and see what we can come up with as best for the student. Who, who's taking the lead?
2: Well, Earl, there's a, there are a number of education advocacy organizations that have done some of the preliminary law changing here, one of which is A for arizona that uh, does a great job. Common Sense is going to play a big role here simply in providing the data. And I think that Glenn plans to continue to put these reports out there to get more and more specific, which we really appreciate. It's a little bit hard for people to understand how this happened. But the fact of the matter is that in the 90s, when we saw we were solving an equity issue and we came up with the school facilities board, it really was necessary. We were growing, Earl, at a rate of over 20 percent. I think you have the same thing going on in Colorado. We're now flat in terms of, you know, public schooling and how many kids are coming in. And we're actually not growing nearly as fast even as a state as we were in the late 90s when all of this was happening. And we set these rules in place. These policies need to speak to the moment that you're in and all of the choice that we now have, we we have to recalibrate. So there are organizations that are helpful here. I think the huge benefit that we have now with Common Sense is that we can rely on some solid economic data and some modeling. And we didn't have that before, so we're we're very excited to be able to use that information and move on it and suggest that policymakers move on it.
1: This kind of goes into the question of innovation and initiatives. Do you see uh, anybody coming up with innovative ideas or initiatives that, that the state should consider moving forward uh, uh, in, in light of what, uh, Glenn, you pointed out? i uh, interested in what you and Lisa might say with regards to that question.
2: Well, I, really quickly, I'll, I'll just say Glenn and I have talked through this with a number of organizations. AFER Arizona is a regular partner of ours. AFER Arizona works with School leaders of high-performing schools that serve low-income kids, and they do that in district systems, charter systems, and also um, in the private sector. They talk to private schools as well about that. So they're asking the best leaders we have of the most successful schools serving the kids most in need, what is it that they need to grow um, what are the barriers and how do we get rid of those for you? And I think that's the best way to do it. Or all far too much conversation goes on without successful educators in the room. We always try to solve failure. There's lots of policy around a school when it's failing, but nobody goes and talks to the really successful people who can give you your answers. It's just, you know, I used to say, it'd be like the Chamber of Commerce going to the worst companies we have to see if we could find a way to boost them up. You know, what you do is you go to your market leaders and say, what are you doing and how do we emulate that?
1: So. Boy, I, I, I know that we're running short on time, but uh, Lisa Glenn, it seems to me that what you're doing is you're saying we can provide the data to show the, the impact of what the programs we have that are unique in Arizona that have from, I can't believe it, that couldn't have a national message associated with them. I hope that, that, that uh, the rest of the states learn from you, and apparently they are, But the other thing that you're pointing out, too, which, you know, we have some issues in Arizona and with those issues, we've kind of taken the common sense approach. Well, where do we find the best minds who are having success in handling these issues and going to them and saying, okay, in a broader sense, how do we take your success and apply it to the rest of our challenges in arizona uh from my perspective uh, it seems to be that a uh, rather an effective approach and i would hope that that's the kind of results that we'll have in arizona you know your leadership and the data analysis that you're doing glenn and your leadership lisa is going to be an important part of that and thank you so much uh for you know being a part of the podcast today thank you earl really appreciate oh, it
0: Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Arizona, please visit commonsenseinstituteac.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on Podcatchers Everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.